Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. Now, here's a hard truth that few people are willing to admit. Pigeonholing is not an accident. As frustrating as it might be to believe, oh, I keep getting pigeonholed, the more accurate viewpoint is that you allow yourself to become pigeonholed. The process happens slowly over a period of months, years, or even decades, similar to the frog that doesn't realize the water is slowly reaching a boiling point. But often by the time you realize the water is boiling, it's too late. And the number one reason that you ended up where you are is because you probably use the word yes way too often. But luckily, pigeonholing can be avoided if you know how to play the networking game. My guest today, Doc Kratzer, has avoided being pigeonholed his entire career. He has edited such shows as Glee, American Horror Story, Sons of Anarchy, Impulse, and he recently transitioned from editing to directing on the show Good Behavior. Of all the people that I know in Hollywood, nobody's name comes up more than Doc's. I have met so many people that know Doc that I've started calling this phenomenon the six degrees of Doc Kratzer because everybody knows this guy. And here's the thing. The fact that everybody knows Doc, that is not an accident. In this conversation, he and I talk about his rapid rise to stardom from being a Midwestern college journalism major who just happened to land an interview with Robert Zemeckis for his student documentary project about Back to the Future, all the way until where he is today as a successful editor and director. And more importantly, Doc and I break down what he calls the concentric circle of networking, so you can connect with and build relationships with the right people on projects that you are actually passionate about, so that you can ultimately avoid being pigeonholed as somebody who can quote unquote, only do one thing. All right, without further ado, my interview with television editor and director, Doc Kratzer. 
I'm here today with Doc Kratzer, who is a filmmaker that works in features and television as not only an editor, but also a producer and a director. And by the way, Doc would like you to know that he struggles to write two-sentence introductions for podcast interviews. So, Doc, it is wonderful. I'm so excited to finally have you on the microphone today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. So we were talking a little bit beforehand, uh, offline before we started this conversation. Uh, I was kind of telling you about my coaching program where I'm doing career coaching and mentorship with people in this industry, helping them make transitions, helping them uh, network, really learn the psychology of networking. And in my coaching program, um, where I work with people, even outside of the coaching program, just in general, the name that comes up more than any other is, hey, do you know Doc Kratzer? So really? basically, yes. Oh, all the time. Your name comes up more than anybody else I've ever met in this industry ever. That is it crazy. Always comes up, which is, I assume that maybe you weren't even aware of that. No. And I hear it all the time, so much so that I've created a game in my networking group that's called the Six Degrees of Doc Kratzer. Oh my so, gosh. So that's one of the biggest reasons that I have you on here today is to understand how the hell does that happen? You must be doing something right because you have an amazing body of work that's not pigeonholed into one specific area. You've worked for different streaming services and networks and you've worked on various different genres and now you have different positions. You're an editor, you're a director, you're a producer. So I kind of want to unpack all of that and really understand how all of this happens so I can then extract some of the takeaways and help other people follow a similar journey if that interests them. But where we have to start is the Doc Crotzer origin story. Because uh, you basically, I don't know if you're aware of it, but I'm pretty sure that you plagiarized my website about page. So I'm pretty upset about that because you <laughs> and I have the exact same origin story. Um, so oh, let's just start no, with where did all of this start? That's crazy about uh, the my name coming up the most. I mean, I think it's probably more a function of it being a unique and uh, memorable name than anything I'm doing. But I guess we can talk more and you can uh, decide for yourself. My initials are DOC. So that's where Doc comes from. But my origin story, I guess, is probably not dissimilar to hundreds of thousands of others as far as, uh, you know, a kid growing up with a video camera, making movies. At some point when I was 13 or 14, uh, I had a great film teacher in high school. There were three film classes that my, my school offered. At some point in that class, it, it was like a big light bulb went on and, and, you know, with his help, it was like, oh, these are actual jobs that, that you can have. And, you know, you probably have to move somewhere other than St. Louis, Missouri to do them. But these are real jobs and, and they're not just these kind of magical things that you, you go and watch on Friday and Saturday nights really big. Um, so from that point on, that, that was what I, what I wanted to do. And of course, um, like many other people, you know, it's like, well, what do you want to do in the business? Well, I want to be a director. And and actually that has turned out to still be the case. Um, although as I've kind of gone through this process, it's been really interesting to see because when I got to the point where I was going to direct my first episode of TV and having, you know, I directed other things to that point, but nothing of that scale or magnitude, there was a part of me going into it where I sort of zoomed out for myself and I was like, you know, it's been so long since I've, since I've really thought about why I want to be a director, it'll be really interesting to come out the other side of this and see if that is still something that really appeals to me. Um, or if that's something that I'm like, I'm really happy I tried it, but it's not something for me. Because, you know, we're all constantly growing and changing. And I think about myself professionally as an editor and how much I've grown and changed with, with stuff. So um, the fact that, you know, a 13-year-old version of myself 
wanted to do something and, uh, you know, he knew the word, but really didn't have much of an idea of what it is. And the fact that I'm now still wanting to do that, I'm, uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. Well, we're definitely going to dive into all of that deeper. However, I want to preface this by saying that you started your origin story in the middle of chapter two. I want to go to the prologue in chapter one, and I want to talk about the origin of the origin story because you started about the exact same age with the same technology that I did. And the reason that I want to talk about this is how it connects later to one of your first big breakthrough projects. So let's talk about when you first decided, this seems really cool to take these things and put them together. Yeah, I mean, I, I at some point I was talking with someone and they said, when did you, when did you start editing and when did you want to be an editor? And it dawned on me that I think the first editing I ever did was recording um, Back to the Future off of broadcast TV on a VCR and trying to, you know, hit pause while it was recording to get rid of the commercials. And then a few years later, when the sequels were out, I remember recording them off TV, hooking up two VCRs to each other and uh, trying to make one long play version of the movie. I, I don't know how well you remember the movies. I imagine you do pretty well, but... Word for um, word, but other than yeah. that, not very well. Yeah, right. So uh, very quotable, but also one of the interesting things about him is the fact that the end of the first movie is the beginning of the second movie as far as... Except they reshot it, which still to this day pisses me off, by the way. But whatever. I understood for casting decisions they had to. So go on. Right. But the attention to detail with that reshoot, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, no, it really it really is amazing how I think how close they got it. But of course, yeah, me too. I was like, why do we need to, two versions of this? So, So I would lop off the the reshoot version for the the second movie as a as a bridge back to the future one to back to the future two and then and then the ending uh it's a montage sequence uh at the end of two so that was just picture for picture and uh, i think that was the first editing i did but that was really fun and then it was sort of like once i had these two vcrs hooked up and i saw kind of the power of that uh you know i i started experimenting with with other things and, and putting stuff together. And of course, every time I did it, my dad was annoyed with me because, you know, we had two VCRs in the house and I was unhooking them uh, to do these things. And then he'd go to watch something. He'd be like, where's the VCR, you know? But that was the start of the editing, I think, exploration for me, you know? And then as I was shooting my own stuff and then again, hooking up two VCRs and, and, and cutting, cutting stuff together that way, I think was when the, the journey, so to speak, sort of started. Well, I'll make sure for all of my younger listeners to put links to Wikipedia so you know whether a VCR is and also what commercials are and why you would need to hit the pause button to take out commercials of a TV show that's on something called broadcast television. So I'm going to have lots <laughs> of Wikipedia links for everybody listening. It's like, what did he just say for the last three minutes? What is he talking about? Why wouldn't you just get them Speaking off of YouTube? A different language. Oh my gosh. Right? It so you, you so and I old. grew up in a very different era. Yeah. Yeah. And I did the exact same thing. For me, I went a step further. Um, and my whole, and I've talked about this before, so I don't want to go uh, too much in detail for my regular listeners. Um, but this all started about the same age. I was eight or nine years old. And my brother, who was significantly older than me, came home with a camcorder, which when I say camcorder, I'm talking about the giant thing that you have over your shoulder with the VHS tape. Ran around all day long shooting this video sequentially, doing the editing in camera. I hated every second of it. All I did was complain. It was hot. I was sweaty. He shows me this six or seven minute thing at the end of the day. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That's all we did? Oh my God, this is the dumbest thing ever. But then two weeks later, 
he had dubbed the score of the good, the bad, and the ugly under that existing picture. <laughs> and it was like seeing porn for the first time. It was the coolest thing I had ever seen. I said, oh my God, how did you do that? And he showed me how he would like wire one VCR to the other VCR. But then the audio was coming from his cassette deck recorder. And again, I will put a link to Wikipedia for what a cassette deck is. And all of a sudden it was hitting record, play, play and having these three things. So I was dubbing different video versus audio. And then I would start shooting my own movies, but I specifically shot them out of order because it forced me to edit them tape to tape with my two VCRs, which again, I was basically hijacking the whole house doing the same <laughs> thing that you were. Um, so I, I've been through a, a very similar process. I feel and like you explaining this screams for a link for uh, for people to watch those things too, if you can dig them up. Yes, I do actually. I created uh, when I was, I think either when I was in college or when I first moved out to LA as a present for my brother, I put together a DVD criterion collection of all of the home movies <laughs> that we did with like special features and like when DVDs were in their heyday. Um, and I still have that somewhere. So the day may come when I actually post That's this and great. people can see me running around the house at nine years old with a duck hunt Nintendo gun shooting at my brother. So, that's, that's um, really yes, that, that I know I knew someday that was going to come in handy and that would be valuable. <laughs> um, but I, and I bring all this up, number one, because it is a fun little anecdote. But more importantly, I bring it up because this is really informing and foreshadowing one of your first projects that you put together that really kind of, you know, uh, catapulted you into the world that you wanted to be in. So tell me how this connects to one of the first big projects that you put together. Sure. So I went to journalism school. I studied broadcast journalism at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. I'm from St. Louis. And my plan had never been to be a journalist. My plan had been to go there for undergrad. They had this great journalism school uh, and then moved to Los Angeles after grad school to attend film school. So that was how I was operating. And at some point, I think early in my freshman year of college, I realized, you know, I'm going to need some stuff to get into film school. You know, it's it's not just going to be an essay. I need to make some movies that are good enough and interesting enough that would potentially set me apart from, you know, the throngs of candidates. So I sort of started thinking about, you know, what is something that is makeable with what I'm doing? What's something that crosses over with the education I'm currently getting? And that just pretty quickly to me, I was like, okay, I need to make a documentary. And then the thought kind of switched to, well, what's what's a subject matter that I'm going to be interested enough in uh, over the next couple of years to, to really see this thing through the right way and make something great. And, you know, so then I thought, well, it should be about movies. What's my favorite movie? Back to the Future. So I'm going to make it about Back to the Future. I mean, that's the, that's the short version of, of the story, but that was, that was kind of the idea. You know, I don't know that, like, there, it was before sort of these, like, fan documentaries became... Uh, more common and, and before there were really places to put them as far as iTunes or Netflix and stuff. So it also came at a time where the internet was new enough where you could, you could basically Google a person's name. Um, and you know, you're gonna have to put another link for this for the kids, but there was a thing called the white pages, uh, in every city with phone numbers and uh, the early beginnings of the internet being in households, you could just look up the white pages for any city and uh, to start to contact these people for my documentary, I just made a list of who I wanted to talk to and sort of made uh, these concentric circles. And I thought I'll start at the outside, um, you know, people who probably haven't been asked a million times to talk about these movies because, you know, what am I going to do? 
call Michael J. Fox and say, hey, I'm, you know, I live in the middle of the country and I want to interview you for my Back to the Future documentary. Like, I didn't think that would work. So I thought, you know, it'd be interesting. Like, maybe I can find the boom operator. Maybe I can find the locations manager. And at the time, I didn't really know what any of these people did uh, anyway on film sets. I mean, you know, I had a general idea of what a boom operator does. He holds a microphone, but there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, you know, same with location manager, all these different roles. So it was sort of an education for me too, to talk to all of these individual people about their crafts. And I think when I was able to get in touch with them, I sort of explained it that way. And, you know, looking back on it, I would imagine for a lot of them, it was refreshing because, uh, you know, people probably didn't ask them that much about what they did, uh, at least for like, you know, documentaries or things. Um, and also it was probably refreshing because they probably saw me as an outsider, you know, I was just a, a kid who really loved this movie and was really passionate about it. And fortunately for me, people were really generous with their time. And then every time I would get like, I don't know, I don't know four or five people from that concentric circle to agree to do an interview. And I was, I was coming out to LA like twice a year, uh, just, you know, self-funding myself to come out for like a week at a time, and just packing interviews in. And uh, every time I would get four or five, six people from one circle, then I'd move inside to the next circle. And, and then I'd be able to say, hey, I talked to this person and that person, and they've all agreed to do an interview. And I'd love it if you would do it. And it was a very slow, methodical process, but it, it worked. I mean, I got, got to talk to pretty much everyone I wanted to talk to. Um, and, and they were all super generous with their time. And, and ultimately, that was a documentary I worked on for three or four years, uh, probably three years uh, while I was in school. I, lo I love that you put it as, well, I got to talk to everybody that I wanted to talk to. You're kind of burying the lead here, my friend. Let's throw <laughs> out some of the names of the people you ended up getting to speak in your documentary. Okay. Um, so uh, the, the biggest get, I think, for me was that it was the first long form interview uh, Christopher Lloyd had ever done about the movies. He's, he's in spite of what he plays on screen, he's much more uh, shy in person and, and at the time really hadn't done a lot of interviews. And that was, that was the most exciting one for me. Um, we didn't do a new interview with Michael J. Fox because uh, if he has a foundation that he's raising lots of money for, for Parkinson's. And part of the way that uh, it was explained to me when I was trying to get an interview was, you know, he'd love to do it. He's very encouraged about the project. But at the moment, for him to, you know, take the time to sit down with people, it has to be fundraising. And and that totally made sense to me. Um, so ultimately, we wound up using some archival Michael J. Fox stuff, um, which we can get to in a bit. But um, the other the other really exciting ones for me, I mean, my my heroes as a, as a kid, as far as filmmakers, were Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale. And um, uh, Bob Zemeckis, who directed the movies and co-wrote the first one uh, with Bob Gale, and then Bob Gale, who produced all the movies and wrote all three of them, they were the two that, that were also incredibly generous with their time. And, and once they agreed to be involved, then it, you know, a lot of other people took the project a little more seriously, I think, and, and, and were willing to also sit down with me. Well, I'm already beginning to deconstruct the six degrees of Doc Kratzer and understand the origin of all of this. Because first of all, the humility of, yeah, I got all these people and I, you know, I ended up getting a Bob Zemeckis to do it. It's like, oh my God, it's Robert Zemeckis. Come on. 
right? So to me, that's awesome, first of all, just to look at it that way. But what I really want to emphasize for people, and maybe this isn't even something you're realizing is that unusual, but this concentric circle approach to networking is so important. And I think the other takeaway that's so important is the fact that you weren't really looking to get a job or you know you, you weren't asking something from these people per se other than a little bit of their time but in a way you were actually providing value to these people because most of them are never recognized for their work and people love talking about what they do for a living and you were providing that opportunity for them which is why on the outside of the concentric circle when you start there it's easier for somebody to say, well, yeah, of course, I would love to give you an hour of my time because nobody ever cares about my point of view on a movie like Back to the Future. Who, like, seriously, who interviews the boom operator of Back to the Future? So that's a pretty amazing opportunity for them to talk about themselves and share their contribution. But I think that your approach to starting from the outside and working inside is one of the biggest mistakes that people make when they network. They say, well, I want to meet really big name editors or directors or producers. And I want to start creating my network because everybody says, well, it's all about who you know. But you know, I, I just, I can't get a hold of Steven Spielberg or I can't get a hold of Walter Mertz or whoever it is. And one of the strategies that I always tell people is you need to start below them. So you don't go after Walter Mertz. Maybe you find out who's Walter Mertz's current assistant editor and show interest in them and get to know them first and open other doors that you might not be able to open if you're going after people that are too high on the list. But secondarily, you can make a list of people saying, well, I know that I would love to talk to Walter Murch and Michael Kahn and Billy Goldenberg and all these Oscar winners. But other people that are just maybe a couple steps ahead of where I am right now, they can give me more insight into where I want to be in five years as opposed to 30 years. So I'm already starting to see this picture of why your name comes up more than anybody else's because you may or may not know it, but you're already using really good networking strategies. So I don't think I had any idea at the time um, that, that I was doing that. I think in hindsight, sort of as we were wrapping up the documentary and uh, one of my best friends uh, produced the documentary with me. And, and I think, you know, we had an approach. I think it came more out of, we don't want people to say no. And we don't, we don't think they'll say yes unless we give them more reasons to say yes. And in this case, it was people's names. But it absolutely worked. I don't think that it would have worked with any other approach, really, because I didn't know anybody. You know, I had no other connections. And, and after I did that first interview trip where I had actually sat down with people, and, you know, I was in journalism school, like I knew how to interview people, or I was at least learning how to interview people. So they went well enough. And then, you know, as you know, how the film industry is, people work together, people stay in touch, they drift apart, but you can call somebody you worked with five years ago, and it's, you can pick up where you left off. And I think once I had those, those first interviewees as references, you know, then people were actually like, oh, yeah, I sat down with them. It's great. You know, you'll, you'll have a good time or whatever they, they would say about it. But then that really allowed it to take off. It was a really fun time for me. I mean, I remember I was working on a story in the, uh, we had an Avid lab at, at Mizzou. That was actually where I learned Avid. And I was cutting a long, long piece for a, a news story, like a 10 minute piece or something, you know, long form news. And it was the week of, uh, week right before Thanksgiving. And my phone rang and it was a unknown California number, which was always exciting. And I answered it and it was Zemeckis's office. And I had not heard from them at all. I've gotten to the point where I had been in touch with an assistant and submitted, you know, a, a write-up of what I was doing and everything, but I hadn't heard anything. They called and they said, Bob's going to be in town next week. Is there any chance you can be here 
to do an interview on Tuesday. I didn't go out of my way to tell people I wasn't out of town. I mean, the approach was always, these are the weeks I can do the interviews, you know, what works for you. So when that happened, of course, then I just I skipped skip school, which became uh, a trend whenever interviews would come up. And, and I flew out to LA. And then while I was out in LA doing Zemeckis, my phone rang and it was Christopher Lloyd calling me directly. And wow. uh, I almost pulled off the road, uh, you know, recognizing the voice immediately. And he said, hey, I heard about your movie. I'm in town. Any chance, uh, any chance we could sit down this week? Like, wow. Yes, yes, yes. There's a good chance. You know, let me check my schedule. Yep, I'm free. It was, it was just a lot of fun going, going through the process. And this is obviously a very condensed version. I mean, this all took about two and a half years, I guess, to get to the point where like those guys were, you know, on board to, to do stuff. But I think, you know, I think that, that sort of fits in with a lot of the things that you talk about on your podcast and with networking and everything, you know, people like people want to help you. People, people want to do things that help you grow, but they also got to know that you're for real, you know? And I think that the difference between a kid out of nowhere calling versus a kid who called two years ago out of nowhere and has followed up every few months and has sent me a five minute teaser cut of his documentary, who's still doing this. It's a very different thing. And I think, you know, showing people that you're in it for the long game, you know, at least with that project paid dividends. And I think, you know, it's, it's kind of applicable for anything. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the the real key here is demonstrating that you are somebody that has done your homework and demonstrating that you are continually and consistently moving this thing forwards. Because yes, if you'd go on the opposite approach and said, man, I would love to do this documentary film, but I just, I don't think that it's going to work without Zemeckis. So I better start with Zemeckis because if I don't get him, I don't have a movie. Then you reach out to him. It's like, yeah, like some kid doing his, I don't have time for this stuff, right? But then all of a sudden it's, oh, wait, I see this work. I know that he's now reached out to 15 people and he has their interviews in the can. And even with somebody as high as Bob Zemeckis, you can trigger FOMO where he's like, well, I kind of don't want to miss out on this. If everybody else is in it, I should probably be in it too, right? So yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that happen and I'm going to schedule it. And I'm going to prioritize it. But again, it's like you said, it's because you made it real. You know, you did your homework. This wasn't just, you know, some opportunistic reaching out. It was for a very, very specific purpose. And I think that's so important for people to understand that most people want to help you. The yep. issue is that when somebody reaches out, like they, they say, like, oh, I, I sent 50 outreach emails and I didn't get any responses. And I hear this all the time in my program. And I will ask them, well, can you, can you show me the email that you sent? And it's basically, you know, hey, my name is, and you know, I'm, I'm currently doing this job and I've attached my resume and a link to my reel for your consideration. I'm thinking, well, why would somebody want to help you if you haven't really demonstrated that you've reached out to them personally? But even if they've demonstrated they've reached out to them personally, what I have found is that it's not that people don't want to help you. It's that you haven't been clear enough so they understand how they can help you. So you need to be clear enough when you're networking so people can say, I understand you, I see your journey, and I'm actually somebody that can help. And 95% of people are probably going to step out of their way and say, oh, I have the ability to help this person, so I will. But people don't make it clear enough because... That takes work. That takes consistency, right? 
My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash Topo. That's T-O-P-O. Yeah, for sure. And I think it, it also sometimes, you know, you just have to sort of suck it up and, and just be clear about what it is you're you're wanting to do or where you want to go. What do you want to get to, you know, because people can't read your mind. Um, and I think there's always a, you know, a thoughtful, respectful way to convey that information. But I think it's really important whether you're talking about, you know, people who could potentially help you that that you just kind of peripherally know or just met or whether you're talking about your bosses, you know, it's, it's that like, honest, open communication, I think, kind of serves you very well. I mean, related to this, but a little different than what we just talked about. But um, when I was getting towards the end of the Back to the Future documentary, uh, my last round of interviews in LA, I sat down with a guy named Todd Hallowell, who was the art director on Back to the Future. He didn't really go on to have much of a career as an art director. But somehow, through the circuitous route of film, he wound up being Ron Howard's executive producer on tons of Ron Howard movies. And Back to the Future always had a soft spot for him because he was an art director. He was very young to get the job at the time. And I remember him telling me stories about going to work and just how magical it was walking around before work on the Universal Backlot and how he felt like a kid and, you know, all these things that I could relate to. And we sat down and had a great interview. And as, as after we had finished the interview and I was packing up the gear and we were just sort of chit-chatting and he said, so what's, what's up for you? Like, what's, you know, what's next? And I said, well, I've got, you know, this semester of school left and then I'm going to move to LA and go to film school. And, and we talked about that a little bit. And he's like, but is this like documentary interviewing stuff? Is this, is this something you're interested in? And I said, yeah, I'm interested in it. You know, it's, it's, it's really fun. Ultimately, I want to get into, you know, scripted narrative stuff. But 
I enjoy this very much. He said, well, I want to put you in touch with a friend of mine. And that was it. That was just, he gave me an email address or a phone number, you know, and, and then I called the guy, I, I, you know, maybe a week later or something. And he said, Todd told me to give you a call. And he said, oh yeah, he emailed me and uh, I have this company and I make DVD special features, which at the time were a really big deal and big business. And that was basically what I was trying to do. I was trying to make a DVD special feature independently but it was very similar to what I was doing with the Back to the Future documentary. And he said, how about this? When you get a cut of your movie, send it to me. I'd love to see it. You know, maybe you can come intern for me or something uh, the summer before you start school, blah, blah, blah. So, okay, great. So I had a DVD at some point. I sent it to him and then he called and he said, hey, I watched it. Why don't you come work for me? I know you want to go to film school, but come to LA, spend a year working for me, get your feet wet. And then decide if you want to go to film school still or keep working for me. But I'd love to have you here. There's, we're, you know, the company at that point was expanding, I think. And I thought about it. It really surprised me. But, but I did it. I, I took it. Um, and I Which thought, company you know, was this, by the way? It's called Blue Collar Productions. Okay. Um, they're still around. They still do lots of stuff. They just don't do as many, you know, DVD and Blu-ray featurettes because no one does that, that stuff anymore, really. But, uh, you know... Uh, that guy who runs the company, Mark Rowan, it's his company and he took a chance on me, invited me to come work for him. I think that at the time I realized also a lot of people going to grad school uh, for film were not going straight from undergrad. And I was going to be doing that. And I thought maybe it wouldn't be a bad year. I'm moving to LA. I really don't know anybody. And this guy has a job for me. You know, what's the harm in deferring um, for a year, taking a job, getting settled in LA? Uh, and then moving forward with stuff. Um, so ultimately, that was what I did. And and then um, I never went to film school. Still wish I had, but uh, you know, sort of. <laughs> I, you, I would argue no right or wrong path. You just I'm arguing the point that you went. You've gone to film school since then. Um, the only difference is that sure. you've gotten paid to attend every single day. Um, uh, that's I, I, yes, for sure. That, that's the way that I look at it because I went through the same thing. And my uh, my story is slightly different, but it's kind of eerie how similar these uh, trajectories are. Um, where I was obsessed with movie trailers and I was like the, the eight or nine minute like home movies that I was making with my brother, I cut a trailer, a 90 second trailer for a nine minute movie. That's how obsessed I was with this stuff. And I was cutting trailers and highlight reels and all the short form, um, what I, what were sizzle reels. I don't even know what the hell a sizzle reel was at the time, but I was doing it all the time. And because I had that experience, when I sent my very first resume to a trailer company in Los Angeles, the week before my college graduation, they called me the Friday evening before my graduation ceremony, right as I was walking out to dinner with my whole family and said, hey, can you come in for an interview on Monday? I'm like, uh, sure. They didn't know I was in <laughs> Michigan because I used a friend of mine's local address in Hollywood. So I got off the phone and I'm like, mom, dad, I have to go to Los Angeles this weekend. <laughs> so I went to my graduation ceremony, had uh, you know lunch celebration with the family and then got on a plane the next morning. And then when I got out to LA and I had uh, an assistant editor job at this trailer company after getting this job, I thought to myself, hmm, I'm an assistant editor, but should I go to film school? Because everybody seems to be getting you know degrees at AFI or USC or UCLA. And I looked into all this. I was like, first of all, this is ridiculously expensive. My family is not wealthy and I'm not wealthy. So I'm going to come out with six figures worth of debt. And I already had debt. Or I could just look at all the jobs I would be taking as my, my film school, except I'd be getting paid for it. 
And I look back on that choice now, and I'm not saying anything against film school whatsoever. If you have the means, it's fantastic. It's great for networking. It's great for perfecting your craft. But if you don't have the means, it's my belief that the world can become your film school and you can choose your courses and your education based on the jobs that you pursue. So basically, the next five years of my career was learning trailers, learning behind the scenes special features. I did all that stuff um, almost concurrently with the time that you're doing it. So this is kind of getting downright creepy. At <laughs> it really is. No, I love that approach. I, and I think you're spot on. Like there, there are so many great things about film school, but I also have seen that there are a lot of great other ways to go about uh, you know, learning your craft. And even before learning your craft, figuring out what what that craft actually is, you know, because I think that for most people who move to Los Angeles or move to New York or want to be, you know, directors, unless you're independently wealthy, you have to pay the bills. And, and, and you also have to kind of find a path to directing. Nobody just hands you, you know, something that they're paying for, for you to direct. So, uh, often, I think that means finding a craft. And, and for me, that was editing. And I, once I sort of realized that that was the part of this that was the most interesting to me, um, it helped sort of because then I could see, okay, there are steps and there's a process and there's a, there's a ladder, you know, and it's like no two persons routes are the same, but at least there, it became a little more tangible to me as far as how to, you know, um, go about trying to start and build a career. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the the entire foundation of everything I talk about is where everybody has their own circuitous individual path. But when you break it down, it's kind of the same three steps. You decide I'm going to climb this specific ladder and then to climb that specific ladder, you have to be awesome at your craft, but you also have to make sure that people know that you are awesome at your craft all of which you were doing. And where I want this to lead us next is where you and I connected for the first time. And I say connected and not met because the really interesting thing that I barely realized and you may not even realize is that I feel like I know you really well. I think we've only met in person twice. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I really don't think we've met in person at any length of time. But the reason that you and I connected was because I filled in for you on Glee when you were getting married. That was kind of the, the first time that you and I crossed paths. Um, but other than like a cursory handshake, you left before I started. So I essentially just inhabited your room for five or six weeks. It just feels like we have spent more time together because we read each other's websites all the time. I, I know it's insane, right? I feel like yeah. you and I are really good friends. And if we just met, we uh, could just get into deep conversation. <laughs> but we've never physically been in the same space for maybe more than five minutes cumulatively. That's so funny. Isn't that uh, ridiculous? I, I hadn't really thought about it like that. But now that you say it, yeah, because that was, you came into Glee. I was trying to remember when when we sort of overlapped at Glee. And that was when when I left because I, I took an episode off out of the rotation so I could go have a proper uh, wedding and honeymoon. And um, it just sort of made more sense to do it all and skip one spot in the rotation. And um, and that was that was when you came in. And yeah, that's crazy. So how did you get to Glee? Because if we're talking about doing special features right out of college and having journalism background and having done your own personal documentary, none of that says to me you were on the right ladder to end up on Glee. Yeah, um, you know, I guess it does sort of come back again to networking, but not in like a calculated way for me, but more in just, uh, you know, you work with people, you do good work together. And then, you know, sometimes they call you, sometimes you call them when there's other work. What had happened when shortly after I moved to LA, I had some friends who were in a band um, that my band in college had played with some and they had been signed to a big label and they were flying them out to LA for a few months to record an album. 
and they had said, would you come sort of embed with us as we're recording and rehearsing and, and, and shoot stuff um, for our website? And, and they had said the same thing to another friend of theirs, who you also know, Joe Leonard. Joe also happens to be from St. Louis. So he and I met through these friends, but we didn't know each other ahead of time, had a lot in common. And we worked together uh, on, on the, these like web series things for, for this band called Ludo and became friends that way. And then we finished that, went off doing uh, our own things. I was at a company, a smaller uh, boutique behind the scenes feature at company at this point. Um, I had moved from the first first company to a different company where I was getting to be more creative and do more stuff and sort of taking on more of a producer role on some of the projects. And we got more work than we could handle. And the guy who ran the company came to me one day and said, hey, we need to bring somebody else in. You know, we want, we want somebody like you. Who would you bring in? And I said, oh, well, we should call Joe. So then Joe came in and worked there for a bit. And then again, we went our separate ways and, and you know, remained friendly. We weren't great friends at that point, but we were friends. I don't know how much time elapsed in between each of these things, but a few years went by again. And, uh, and then Joe had been working on the Glee pilot. And I, he, he could correct me, but I believe his story kind of goes the same. They came into his room once Glee was, we knew, or they knew at the time that it was going to get at least the first 12 episodes, or maybe it was 11 plus the pilot that had already been shot. And they were starting to crew up for that. And they said to Joe, you know, we need some people like you. And Joe said, well, let's talk to Doc. And the other, the other way that Glee kind of just happened right place, right time for me was that it was a final cut show. It wasn't Avid. And especially at that time, I think around town in Hollywood, there were very different hiring pools um, for both editors and assistant editors. And Avid was, you know, much more commonly used in television. It was almost unheard of, I think, to use Final Cut. I think the only other show at the time was Scrubs that I knew of that was using Final Cut. But that was, that was sort of my asset because I had, been, I had been editing documentary, all the featurette stuff. I had been assisting myself. I had assistance for some of the projects as well, but I knew Final Cut 7 inside and out. And I think that that really was... That plus the personal reference from Joe and, and sitting down with, with Brad, who was the lead editor on Glee and cut the pilot. I think the interview was more like, okay, we see in this person, you know, he has the technical skills. He has the desire to learn the scripted skills that he doesn't have. And he seems like someone we wouldn't mind spending 16 or 18 hours a day with. Uh, you know, which are, these are all valuable considerations when you're talking about hiring an assistant editor. So that was sort of how I got the Glee job. You know, I think it was, I was very lucky. But I also think that, you know, I developed a certain skill set that was enough to get me that job after you get past the luck part of, you know, happening to be friends with the guy who was assisting on it, you know, and then you sort of sink or swim as you do with a new job. Well, anybody that listens to this show on a regular basis knows how much I hate the L word. I don't believe in luck when it comes to opportunities like this. I do believe in bad luck. So if you just happen to be walking down the street and you get hit by a car, well, that's just shitty luck. But when it comes to a situation like this, you are in the right place at the right time. So yes, that circumstance did happen, but it's because you already had a good relationship with Joe 
And had you not gone out of your way to recommend a job for him and provide him value, he wouldn't have reciprocated in return. And I think the other two really valuable points that you bring up is it wasn't just a matter of, oh, well, it was about who I know and it just happened and I got lucky. Well, no, there were certain criteria. One of them was, does this person have the technical skills, which you've been working on for years? And by the way, everybody that's listening saying, wait, they do TV on Final Cut? This is the old version of Final Cut. This was basically <laughs> what Adobe Premiere has become now, um, yeah. which in my opinion, Final Cut 7 is still the best NLE ever made. And I'm sure I'm going to get hate mail. I don't care. I really miss my Final Cut 7. <laughs> um, best NLE ever. Final Cut X, I've touched it once. Not for me at all. I don't have anything against it. It's just not made for me. Um, but the point is you had the right skills and it's not like those skills were handed to you. You earned them by doing your own projects and being a self-starter. But the other piece is can this guy be in a room with us for 16 hours a day? And as an aside note, 16 hours a day was the norm in the Ryan Murphy camp. And it would usually be more when things got busy. I know when I said that number, I thought to myself, like, am I being, you know, has the distance made me forget how many hours we actually worked uh, on that show a lot of it's, the it was It was pretty ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, those are the pieces that so many people miss because they'll hear your story and they'll say, oh, well, that's awesome. But that's never going to happen to me. But if you break it down, it really was about you really perfected the craft of knowing Final Cut 7, doing your own assistant work, which is kind of how I rose as well. Because my first three features, either three or four, I can't remember, I was my own assistant because they were so low budget. So I was cutting them, but I was also syncing my own dailies. I was digitizing my own DAT tapes. And again, the millennials are like, what the hell is a DAT tape? Um, but <laughs> yeah. I was digitizing my own dialogue, syncing it, and then cutting it all at once on a regular editorial schedule. So that built up those skills that most people wouldn't be willing to do. But for me, it was part of that process of I want to send myself to film school and learn all the various areas of the craft. But you also made sure that your friends that you were providing value to knew that you had enough of those craft skills to then recommend you when the opportunity came up. So I don't really believe that you were lucky. You have no control over when the opportunity presents itself, but luck is just when that hard work meets the opportunity. Fair enough. I, I don't disagree with you on that because I also think that, um, you know, even if, you, if the right place, right time thing happens, if you don't have the skills to back it up, then nothing great long-term comes from it. Uh, well, where I want to go next is we have this picture of how you've gone from having this project where you were a self-starter as a student that then became a very real project with real people involved. You get the recommendation to be at this uh, DVD special features company, which through this thing to another thing to another thing leads you to Glee. But now what I'm interested in learning more about is how is it that you've constructed such a wide breadth of work in television because you've not just worked on musical comedies on Fox. You've done such a wide variety of not only genres, but mediums between Fox and YouTube and Apple and TNT and all these other areas. So how is it that all of that happened from Glee moving forward? Good question. I don't have like a, a really specific answer. I mean, I do know that when I was working on Glee and I was starting to look at, okay, what do I do next? You know, at the time, I because I got my big break editing on Glee, you know, I had, I think when I finished, I had cut like 26 episodes or 24 episodes or something like that. So I had all these Glee credits and no other scripted credits. As I was trying to take meetings and trying to find the next thing, it became really clear really quickly to me that whether I wanted people to or not, I was going to be pigeonholed in a way that I wasn't comfortable with. And I, I wasn't 
I wasn't into that, you know, and people thought that, oh, he's the Glee guy. So, you know, we have a musical component. So let's, that guy worked on Glee. He can do that, you know, or whatever it was like. And, and for me, I think I was just like, well, I don't only do that. You know, I, I love spaghetti, but I like lots of other food too. And, and so I like, I think in my mind, I was really pushing against trying to get pigeonholed to the point where I, I think I, you know, I think there were some jobs that I didn't get because I was in the room. I was just saying like, what I don't want is to do Glee again. Like I did that and that was awesome. And I'm really proud of that work, but I want to be challenged in a different way. You know, I want to use different parts of my brain muscles for different types of story and, and stuff like that. And ultimately the way that I got my next gig was through one of the directors who I had worked with a bunch on Glee, Paris Barkley. Um, he was a producing director on Sons of Anarchy and they were getting ready for their sixth season. and we were in between Glee seasons. And by that point, I had already decided I didn't want to come back to Glee. I felt like I really, you know, needed to spread my wings and, and sort of, you know, graciously let everyone know who had been uh, so great to me there that, you know, I was going to try and find something else. And my phone randomly rang and it was Paris. And he said, hey, we have an opening for season six of Sons of Anarchy. Would you like to uh, come in and, and interview for it? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'd like to come in. He goes, you know the show, right? And I said, yeah, I know the show. I love the show. And I did love the show, um, but I had only watched like two seasons of it at that point. So he said, great, come in tomorrow and they'll call and set it up, figure out a time. Like, okay. So then I spent the rest of the day uh, watching Sons of Anarchy. And um, the next day I went in and, and met with uh, Kurt Sutter, the showrunner, and uh, Craig Yahada, who is the post producer. And from there, that was, that was my next gig. And then I think having come off of Glee into Sons of Anarchy, you know, it, it was about as extreme as I could have ever hoped for to push against the grain as far as being pigeonholed as only editing or working on one type of show to the point where that was like the first question in every meeting that I had since then for probably five or six years. And even still, sometimes people ask because they're, they're both still on my resume and they go, how, do you, how did you go from Glee to Sons of Anarchy? But, you know, I think ultimately it was, I had done good work for a director who understood enough about editing to know that you're not one type of editor. You can do other things. And he saw something in that work and he thought this might be a fit. You know, let's give him a shot. So he gave me that shot and then the showrunner said, yeah, sure, we'll give him a shot. And, uh, and then I got to do the final two seasons of Sons of Anarchy. And after that, it was much more like people were willing to, you know, you still push against it. It still happens no matter what. But I think that was a really good foundation for, for me as far as he's not one type of editor or storyteller or whatever. Well, oh, shucks. It sure sounds like you got lucky getting that opportunity. That's all about luck right there, <laughs> right? That had nothing to do with you being fantastic at your work on Glee, building a relationship with this director who ended up being a director producer on another show, and then being willing to say to multiple other opportunities, I'm sorry, but this isn't what I want. That's the opposite of luck right there. That's very, very clear. That's being very, very clear about what you want and what you don't want. And the reason that I believe most people get pigeonholed is they're too scared to say the word no. Absolutely. And it's hard to say no. I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard. You know, I didn't, I don't think during that period of time, I never turned down an actual job offer, but I sort of was 
honest enough in the meetings that I think I probably didn't get a couple offers because of my honesty. But saying no is a really hard thing. It's a, it's a scary thing to do, especially if you're, if you're in a period where you're not working or you're approaching a period where you aren't going to be working and there's something there, you know, to say no to that is, is tough. But, and sometimes you're in a position where you can say no. Sometimes you're in a position where you can't. But if you are in a position to say no and something doesn't fit with your goals or, or, or your individual criteria for how you evaluate a job, which I think we probably all have our own, our own criteria, you know, then you should say no, because you're not going to be happy doing it. And yeah, I agree with that completely. The only thing I want to modify, and this is, I think, another one of the mistakes that people make, is when you say, well, they either are in a position or they aren't in a position to say no. And my revision to that is you've either put yourself in a position or not put yourself in the position to say no. And I think one of the things that leads to pigeonholing and being stuck doing the same thing year after year after year after year is not doing the financial planning necessary to know when you're able to say yes or no. And there's no shame in realizing, oh, wow, I really need to make some money right now. And if that means I have to edit some reality TV or do some low-budget international sales trailers, like whatever that is, that's fine. But ultimately, you have to put yourself in the position where you know, what's my sleep easy number? I can go to bed tonight saying no to this project, but understanding I can still pay my bills. That's what keeps you from being pigeonholed because ultimately, everybody wants to pigeonhole you and it has nothing to do with you. It's all about them because they just want to cover their ass because if things go wrong, they can say, well, listen, it's not my fault. This guy has done four other music shows. He should have been able to do this one as opposed to if things hadn't gone well on Sons of Anarchy then they would have been like, well, we could have told you that was going to happen. He's only done glee. I, you should have seen this coming, right? Yep. So it's all about covering your own ass. That's all that it is. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely true. Uh, well, now what I want to understand, and this is what I think is really, really important and is kind of the, the next phase of your journey. And I realize that you're still kind of in this transitional phase, but you started with directing your documentary projects, then going into special features, then having this wide breadth of projects that you've done in network television, on YouTube. Now you're working on an Apple show, if I'm correct. But you've also done some directing. So how have you navigated this transition from just being the glee guy to just being the the scripted drama guy to being able to do kind of any medium, but also being considered as a director? It's tricky. You know, the, the director thing is really tough um, to sort of navigate because I think the key, if you are a craftsperson, you know, and in this case, an editor for me, the way to get an episode seemed pretty clear to me, which is is to just be the best fucking editor I can be. And and one of my mentors on Glee, Brad Beaker, who was a supervising editor, he cut the Glee pilot. By season two, he was directing, I, don't, I think he did three or four episodes, season two, maybe more than that. Uh, but ultimately, I think he wound up directing more episodes of Glee than anybody. The reason he got that opportunity, and I... I because I was working on Glee at the time, I saw it all play out in real time. It was because he was the best fucking editor on the planet. And the showrunner saw that. And he made it clear to the showrunner that this was something he wanted to do. And there's, you know, there's so much crossover between editing and directing that if someone is really good at editing, there are aspects of directing they are probably also going to be really good at. There are also parts of it that don't cross over at all that you really have to work you know, to be good at because it's a different toolkit, you know, but they, they gave him that opportunity. So I had seen that play out. And that was sort of my model, I think, for, you know, working towards an episode, it was kind of slow and steady wins the race, like, 
I'm going to be really, really good at this editing thing. I'm going to make myself through my work an indispensable puzzle piece for all the people I'm working for on their shows. And I'm going to, you know, make it clear to them in the right moments and in the right way that there's more to me than just editing. And my hope is that if I do this consistently with people, eventually it will get to a point where someone gives me that chance to direct. So, so that was sort of the approach for me. Uh, so the show that I, I did direct my first episode of TV uh, on a show called Good Behavior, which was a TNT hour-long drama. And, and specifically with that show, kind of the progression of it was... And this is a... I should jump around for a second. But um, one of the things when I'm looking at jobs and evaluating jobs is I really like working with people multiple times. Like if I've worked with someone before and we had a good experience, um, that almost always pushes them to the top of, of you know, what I'm trying to do next. Because I love the way that you can grow creative relationships with people. And you know, a season of TV or a feature film, it's a long time. But two or three seasons of two or three different shows is a really long time. And you can really make strides with people creatively. So I had worked on a show called Wayward Pines on Fox. And the showrunner from that was a guy named Chad Hodge, who's a great writer. And he had created this um, pilot called Good Behavior for TNT. And TNT was trying to do the, we're serious about hour long drama thing, which was a little bit of a departure from their other content. So they were giving him a lot of creative latitude to really go make this show that you would probably more likely see on AMC or HBO or something. So, okay, so this is a luck thing. I, I, can I use the word once or at least let's tell you the story? You're, you're going to have you... to prove me wrong. Let's put it that okay. way. So okay. let, let's see if you can, uh, you can convince me. So I was working. So I mentioned the showrunner, Chad. We had worked together. He was prepping the pilot for good behavior. And the director for the pilot, lovely lady, she had her own editor that she had worked with a bunch she's Danish and I believe the editor was Danish as well. And they were all set to do that. I was working on a different show called Quarry, which was a HBO Cinemax uh, drama. And I came out to the parking lot one day because I was walking my dog, who I bring with me to work whenever I can. It's probably the healthiest uh, thing that I augment my, my work with to keep me sane. But I'm taking her out for a walk at lunchtime and I see on a parking space, spot reserved for C. Hodge. And I thought, huh, that's got to be Chad. So I sent him a text message. I said, hey, I, I just saw this. Are you, are you working out of this building? And he texted me back. He's like, yeah, we just moved in today. Come over. So I go over to his office. And we reconnected. And at that point, we weren't, you know, we, we had a great time working together, but we weren't friendly or, you know, social or anything like that. But it was great to reconnect. And, and he said, yeah, we're doing this thing. And if it gets picked up, you know, I'd love to bring you on because it's such a good time working together and, and blah, blah, blah. You know, that, that sort of thing. It was great. So I left and, and, oh, and he said, that was when he said to me, you know, Charlotte has her own editor. Otherwise, you know, we would have called you, blah, blah, blah. And then like a week later, he calls and he says, hey, they're not going to, I think it was TNT wasn't going to pay for her editor uh, to, you know, come over and work on the show or something. It was something like that, or the editor wasn't available or whatever. And he said, can you come 
meet Charlotte, the director. So I did. And, and that was how I got good behavior. And I think that was lucky. The only thing that was lucky was you happened to be walking your dog and you noticed his name on a parking space. That's, I'll give that, you that, that is one. the luck part. Yeah, the rest I mean, of it, you earned every bit of it. But seeing the parking spot, all right, you win. Sure. And it's like, look, Chad's made a lot of shows. And at that point, it wasn't like he and I had done so many things together where I was like his guy or anything like that when he thought editor. But we had had one good experience. But I think me seeing his parking spot when that other editor fell out may have been the difference between whether I was the first phone call he made or the third. You know what I mean? And who knows if if I had been the third, maybe he wouldn't have even had to make three phone calls. I don't know. But I think that there was a little right place, right time. But again, back to all of your points, you know, that luck was there, but it wouldn't have even been there had it not been for, you know, some level of, of good work before that point. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. And here's the other thing too that I think the, the luck is there, but it's really, really minimal. And the reason I say that is because you took the initiative to reach out and say, hey, is this you? A lot of people may have felt like, well, we've worked together, but he's a showrunner and I'm just an editor. Like the word just is thrown around all the time. Oh, I don't know if I should, right? But you did and you put yourself out there. And I think that one of the huge takeaways here that most people don't understand is where you said, well, I became his first phone call instead of his third or his fourth. And people always think to themselves, well, I've met this person once. I've given them my resume. I've given them a link to my portfolio website. And I know that I'm really good at what I do. So therefore, I'm going to be the best candidate. But people don't hire the best candidates. They often hire the most recent one that they're familiar with, that they remember. Yep. So I've been through this myself, and I'm sure this has happened to you too. Somebody will come to me and say, hey, I'm looking for an assistant editor super quick. Who do you recommend? I don't go to my database that's meticulously organized of every single assistant editor that I know that I have prioritized by level of skill and availability. I think, oh, you know what? I talked to this guy last week. You should talk to him because that's where my brain goes. Absolutely. Right? That's so it's exactly about being how I familiar yep. and recent, not the most qualified. So that was, that was how I got into good behavior. And then so we did the pilot together. 
Um, and that was a great experience. Obviously, I think that there's a ton that editing can bring to any project. But but I think in particular with the pilot of Good Behavior, we really sort of discovered like a language for the show, you know, in conjunction with how it was shot, but an, an editorial language and style that we sort of further honed in on the rest of season one once it got picked up. But But that was sort of the start of this like really cool creative partnership. And, you know, with the show editorially, with the showrunner, we wound up doing, we wound up picking up a couple new scenes. So, so the pilot got picked up by TNT, but they wanted to do some additional photography a few months after we had wrapped the pilot. And the conversations about, you know, kind of how we were going to shoot things and, and what was going to be shot, some of that was, I, I was involved with. And I think that was sort of the start of the conversation where, you know, whether, I don't know if, if Chad at the time knew that I had other aspirations other than editing, but certainly we were having conversations about other aspects of filmmaking beyond just editing. You know, and looking back on it, it was that was at least the start of kind of he and I having larger creative conversations than simply things about specific cuts or episodes that I specifically edited. And then once the show got picked up for season one, he came to me and and said, you know, I really want you involved with every episode, how do we do that? And, and then I sort of, you know, we talked about it and I, I referenced um, kind of the working model that I had seen and worked in on Glee with, um, you know, a supervising editor, producer um, who was cutting some, but also was overseeing a lot of other episodes for sort of creative consistency and tone and style and stuff like that. And, you know, and I sort of told him how that worked. And then we talked about aspects of of that setup that we thought were good, things we thought we wanted to try differently, things that we thought might need to be different based on this type of show, et cetera, et cetera. And sort of just developed a plan with that. And then and then from that point, it was sort of I took on, I was cutting every third episode, but also uh, was giving him feedback on the other episodes as well. And then I'm assuming that that at some point led to the need for somebody that could step in either maybe it was second unit or directing an episode, what kind of what was the catalyst that finally got you behind the camera to direct your first episode? During season one, again, at the end of season one, we picked up some stuff photographically and I had sort of designed just with, honestly, it was just like, you know, text cards in the Avid, but there was a sequence in particular. I remember that it was, it needed to be a lot more than what was shot. And it wasn't, it wasn't a reflection of the person who directed it or anything like that. It was just one of those things where after the fact, we all sort of realized like we need a lot more than we got. And this moment has to be a bigger deal for X, Y, and Z reasons. So in the Avid, I sort of slugged in descriptions of the shots and the action happening in the shots that I thought we needed and, you know, showed it to, to the showrunner. And I remember it that day because he said to me, oh, you should just direct this. And that meant a lot to me that he you know, thought that. And also I knew, of course, that that wasn't a reality, but that was a great, a great sort of mile marker because then furthering the conversation, you know, when we were wrapping up that stuff, I just, I, you know, I said something to him, I'm sure along the lines of like, hey, remember when you said that, like, I, that is really something I, I, I want to do. Um, and I would love it if, if an opportunity presents itself, you know, on this show in the future, if, you know, if we get another season, if you'd consider me. And not like putting pressure on it at all, but just putting it out there. And then we waited and waited to see if we were going to get a second season. And of course, you know, I was off doing other things. And, and then he called and he said, I have 
good news. We're getting a second season. And I have better news is I think you're going to get to direct one of them. So he was a real mensch to me. And, and I'm, you know, I'm sure I don't even know the half of it, kind of the fight that he probably had uh, with some people who are like, oh, this guy's too inexperienced or this is only season two and we only have 10 episodes. Like, you know, this is not the time. Uh, I can imagine a lot of conversations happening uh, that I wasn't a part of, but but he went to bat for me. And of course, you know, I had to show some stuff to to him and some other people. And then there was a, a couple meetings with studio executives where I think those meetings were very clearly like, let's make sure this guy is okay. You know, let's make sure we're okay with this. Because they didn't really know me. They knew my work and they knew my name. And we had been on some conference notes calls and stuff, but that was it, you know. So sort of a let's make sure we're comfortable giving this guy the keys to the car for the weekend type thing. But the real tricky part, I think, about this whole thing is when you make yourself, you know, when you try and do good enough work that you're creatively indispensable in a role, and then you say, hey, I want this other role, and I want to do this this other different role that happens at the same time that you need me to be doing this role that I just proved to you I'm indispensable at, it creates a lot of scheduling challenges. And, and that was a big thing um, with Good Behavior and other friends of mine who have kind of, uh, you know, done similar things. Uh, we've kind of shared stories about that. But it's always tricky then because you, you make yourself a, such a big part of the cutting room in order to get the opportunity. And sometimes then it gets to the point where someone might say, and this had happened to me where, where there was a conversation where uh, before this with a, a different uh, show, it was like, yeah, we'd really we would love for you to get to do this opportunity, but we just, we can't lose you in the cutting room right now. So it's a really tricky thing. You'd have to sort of find that balance. And, and I think that with good behavior, once, once that conversation started, I was super proactive about like, okay, these are three different scenarios that I think we could do that would all work. You know, and, and Chad, the showrunner, when we had the first conversation had said to me, you know, in as much as saying like, okay, so this is great, but now we have to make sure that this doesn't screw up post. So how do we do that? And so, you know, we came up with different scenarios where I was like, well, what's it look like if I direct the third episode? What's it look like if I direct the sixth episode? What's it look like if I direct the ninth episode? And the logistics of it all, you know, was a big thing for us to plan and figure out. And ultimately, it wound up being uh, doing the ninth episode of the season allowed for me to be around to do the main job that I had on that show or the main jobs and, and then sort of sneak out towards the end of the season to go shoot one and then quickly come back so that I was still there for cutting the finale and, um, you know, finishing the other episodes. So, so I directed the ninth one and then cut the 10th one. And that was a very, it was a busy, busy couple of months. Uh, the other thing I should mention about the transition for me from editing to directing, uh, something that I did sort of laying the groundwork for it was, I started asking whenever I could directors I had worked with if they would let me shadow them, you know, and basically presenting it. Actually, it was, again, maybe this falls back with like the concentric circle idea. I would sort of present a couple options. It would be like, hey, could I sit down with you for coffee and talk about directing? That's something I want to get into. Or could I take you to lunch? Or could I shadow you? You know, and sort of would, it, would any of these scenarios work for you? And, and you tell me when. And fortunately, many of the directors that I have worked with were really generous with their time with me. And I shadowed a bunch of them before I went to direct my episode. Um, Because that is a question also that I found comes up a lot, actually, is you say, I want to direct an episode. And and often the first question from someone is, well, have you shadowed? 
And what you want to be able to answer, I think, is not yes, but you want to say, yeah, I've done it nine times or, you know, whatever it was. I think I, I think I maybe shadowed seven or eight directors uh, for various lengths of time. Like most often it was for a day or two, but in a couple instances, they let me shadow them for the duration of a whole episode. And uh, that's so useful, especially when you're coming from post and not from a production standpoint, uh, no matter how many shows you've worked on, no matter how much you've tried to learn, there's so much that you don't really know until you get in there, you know, on a production side and, and see someone else go through it. I think it was really useful for me to see other directors that I had good relationships with go through these parts of the process. And they were so open with me about, you know, me kind of having follow-up questions as we would, you know, we'd get out of a production meeting. They're in the middle of prepping an episode, you know, and, and yet they're still allowing me to be like, hey, you know, you said this, what were you thinking with that? You know, and uh, so really wonderful people kind of going out of their way to, to pave the way for me that when I was then thrown into, you know, my prep for directing my episode, I had already spent a lot of time shadowing, including our producing director on that show for a whole episode. So it wasn't this uh, unknown thing. I knew exactly what I was getting into and, and I felt ready. Yeah, I think that that's vitally important to point out, not just for directing, but for transitioning to any job that you want to do. And in post, the first thing that people always come to me and say, well, I want to be an editor and I'm in reality right now, or I'm an assistant or whatever it is. And I'm not sure what the path is. And like, well, the first step is you have to build relationships with the right people that are doing what you want to do. And then you start to shadow. So you actually get a picture of what does the lifestyle look like? What are the requirements? Am I even learning the right skills? I'm taking an online course, but now that I'm shadowing, they don't use any of this stuff. So maybe I'm wasting my time and I need to learn other things. And as you go through that process, they start to learn you better. They understand your preferences. And what I see over and over and over is people that get their first opportunity in the assistant editor chair and scripted were shadows for the person that recommended them. And I'm sure it's the same thing in directing as well. And it really applies to just about any field. But if you've been in that environment and you know what are some of the fires that are going to come up and how do I put those fires out, even if I don't have real world experience, I have preparation. That is such a huge key that makes it so much easier to understand the path once you've seen other people walking that path. Yep. And the other thing that's great about it and thinking about it as we're talking is like, you know, we already spoke about, well, how do you make it known that you want to do other things, but in a way that doesn't seem like you're unhappy with your current job, you know? And whether you're talking about shadowing an editor when you're an assistant editor or shadowing an assistant editor, if you're, if you're not in scripted yet, if that's what you want to do, or shadowing a director when you're an editor... The word shadowing, everyone on the set, everyone on the crew knows exactly why you're doing that. They know that you're shadowing the person who has a job that you would like to be doing. And it's a great way to, it, it like puts it out there without you having to even say it out loud. Everyone understands it. And, and I think it's a much uh, smoother way out into the world. And it, could, it would never be misconstrued, I think, as, oh, he's not happy in his current job. You know, if it's like, oh, well, Doc's going to shadow so-and-so. It's like, oh, that's cool. He's interested in that. And he would like to be doing that. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And by the way, 
the concentric circle approach, I am now going to be stealing that from you and trademarking it before you do, because it's brilliant. <laughs> and it applies perfectly to the work that I'm doing, both with networking, um, with moving your career forwards, like the way that you applied it to, well, how do I get all the people in the interview for Back to the Future? Well, let me start in the outside of the circle, the easier to hit targets, and then go towards the bullseye. And I love how you've now applied that to, well, if I want to shadow with somebody, I don't ask somebody their first morning of directing, hey, can I shadow? It's, hey, Let's chat for a little bit. Let me ask you a few questions about directing. Oh, hey, well, how about we go grab lunch? I'd love to go deeper. Then you go deeper. They get to know you better. You demonstrate that you're an amazing editor. Now, perhaps you can ask the shadow. That's just the same concentric circle going from the easier to hit target to the bullseye. So I am stealing this from you and I'm putting it on the record right now. So if anybody's like, this <laughs> is brilliant, Zach, how did you come up with it? I can say, just listen to this podcast where I stole it from this guy. So it's <laughs> well, brilliant. But it's on record now. So at least I have a record that it's, it's on know, the record. So, well, so once this program blows up, you can sue me for all that I'm worth and say, no, this was mine. <laughs> but I think to, to really distill it down once again, uh, you can look at it in hindsight. And it really kind of makes sense because once again, looking at this framework, you knew the ladder that you wanted to climb. And that was the directing ladder. You'd been aware of it in the back of your mind for a long time. You demonstrated you were awesome at your craft. But here, that conversation takes on a bigger meaning because number one, like you said, you knew the best way to climb the directing ladder was to be a really great fucking editor first because some of the best directors were editors first. But then you also demonstrated, I understand the directing craft by helping to solve a lot of the problems that they were having on the directing side. And you made sure that they knew it, right? So you were being very vocal about it. So had he gone into the season two renewal, putting together his director list, but you had been proactive enough to say, hey, listen, this is actually something I'm really interested in doing. This never would have happened. And that proactiveness for most people doesn't end up happening because they're afraid of saying, well, I really want to do this instead. And what I found is kind of the biggest hurdle oftentimes, and I'm sure you see this too, for a lot of assistant editors that just feel like, oh, I'm stuck. I just can't transition to the chair. It's because they're really, really good assistant editors, but they haven't proactively solved the problem of why is it better for me to actually be an editor than an assistant as opposed to, would somebody just move me up already? I'm just waiting for my chance. Why isn't it happening? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, waiting for your chance is sort of a, a very, I mean, I've, I've seen it with people and, you know, certainly some people wait for their chance and then they get it and that's it. But, you know, I think it's got to be a much more proactive approach and you got to really want it. You know, some people, it's like you got to want it for the right reasons as far as, you know, if you want to make the jump from assisting to editing, because some people are really great assistant editors, uh, a good friend of mine, actually, and he made the jump and he he was like, you know what, this is not for me. And and I think that he he made the jump for certain reasons that he thought would be a certain way. And then and then he realized, like, actually, there's a lot more of the qualities of, of being an assistant editor that that fit with what I want to do when I come to work every day. But yeah, it's it's certainly and it's a delicate thing, I think, to when you're talking with bosses, uh, you know, and decision makers and sort of making it known, like, how do you how do you make it known that you're really, really happy in the job that you have so much so that it gets you excited about potentially trying to do other things on the show versus giving the appearance like, I'm just waiting for this other thing. And I'm begrudgingly doing this job. Oh my know? God, do not get me started with this. This I tell this to people all the time where they say, well, I know that I'm really best suited as an editor. So, I mean, I guess I'll just kind of do the bare minimum as an assistant, but I would rather just cut scenes. What are the odds that I'm going to recommend you 
to be an editor if I don't even think you're a good assistant editor first? Like the logic of that doesn't make sense, but I've worked with assistants where I'll ask them to do assistant duties and they don't have time or they're not interested, but then they'll knock on my door an hour later and say, hey, do you have scenes for me to cut? I'm like, no, I'm not going to let you yeah. cut scenes if you won't even do your job first. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it, it's like a, there's a, you know, there's different attitudes different people have about it, but I always find myself most aligned with people who are really happy in the job that they're doing. And they also share with me a desire to continue to grow creatively, you know, and if that means them going from assistant editing to editing, if that means from editing to directing, like whatever it is, like I can relate to people on that level. I I have a harder time relating to the, I want this other job. So I'm just going to like sleepwalk my way through this one. And, you know, it's, it's more of like a sense of entitlement that, you know, I think, I've noticed it more lately, I think just because there's more work. So the hiring pool uh, has changed some. And, and also because there are stories of people who, you know, like I'm not, uh, I mean, I'm sort of one of them. Like I didn't spend a really long time as an assistant editor. And, and I've had people explicitly say to me like, oh, like you didn't really earn that, did you? You know, and so I get how it appears. And, and I think that with that sometimes comes an attitude that like, you can just do it. Like I'm ready to be an editor because I say I'm ready to be an editor. When in fact, it's sort of the other way around. You like get yourself ready and then you make it known to people that you're ready because you might get an opportunity, but if you're not actually ready for it, you're going to fall on your face. And then those same people that you worked to get that opportunity with are never going to give you that opportunity again. And you're sort of back to square one if you haven't sort of done the work ahead of time to, to be ready, you know, when it gets thrown at you. I couldn't agree more. And everybody uses the excuse, well, I put in my time, right? It's all about my 10,000 hours and I put in my 10,000 hours. So I'm ready. What were those a good 10,000 hours? I mean, think about the analogy that I like to use is just because you've been typing for 30 or 40 years of your life doesn't mean that you are incrementally getting better and faster. And a year ago, you were typing 80 words a minute and now you're typing 120 words a minute. That takes intentionality and skill building as opposed to, well, I've been editing for 30 years. Yeah, but you're still a crappy editor because you don't care about your craft. You just show up in your chair, do the bare minimum and go home versus somebody that may have put all of their time, energy and attention into, I want to get better at the craft of storytelling. Like for me, I was an assistant editor for five months out of college and kind of going back to the previous conversation, I essentially walked into my boss's office and I sold them and why I was a better asset as an editor than an assistant and why it was going to be worth it to pay me like two or three times what I was getting paid. And they're like, oh my God, you're right. This does actually make more sense. And I got promoted and I've been an editor ever since. But it was because they saw the value in it. And I was putting in my time preparing myself by getting better at the skill rather than saying, well, just need to be in the assistant chair another two and a half years. And I put in my three, three to five years and I should get the chair. It's like, but if you haven't been working on your storytelling ability or your ability to manage politics in the editing room, then those hours really aren't valuable hours. So why does that give you the right to think it's time for you to transition? Yeah, for sure. And I think it also, it takes, you know, working for people who are willing to sort of be mentors if they know that you want to grow into being an editor, that they're willing to have conversations with you about storytelling and about the craft, not just conversations about, you know, the difference between DNX 36 and ProRes or, or any sort of technical stuff. Because there's also, I think a lot of times people don't make the distinction between the technical side of what we do and the creative side of what we do. But in order to grow into being an editor, I think you have to really prioritize the, the creative side of it. And often it takes, 
you know, working for somebody who's willing to let you do that on the job. You know, and for me, when I worked on Glee, I, I was an assistant. I came on at some point around the director's cut or right after the director's cut of the pilot where we were still making changes to it. Um, and I assisted uh, during the first 12. And then when it got picked up for a back nine, there was an open slot and I was able to cut one of them. Um, but during those first 12, I had a whole bunch of people that I worked for who were willing to let me cut, you know, and they had the right attitude about it. I think I had the right attitude about it. It was like, let's see what he can do because they can always cut it themselves. They would have had to do that anyway, you know, but they were willing to share in that with me. And we were, so we were constantly having conversations and reviewing cuts and, you know, and there was so much growth there. I think I learned a ton in a short amount of time specifically about how to cut Glee that then as I worked on that show for the next four years, it sort of, it was almost in like reverse order. Like I specifically knew how to cut Glee, but then I really was working on, on learning how to just be able to cut kind of anything thrown at me. And, and the nature of that show sort of helped because every episode was so different from the last and there were some crazy things and, you know, so many different cameras and, and big music numbers and small dialogue, emotional nuance scenes and everything in between. So but I don't know. Now I'm rambling. No, it's, I, I can completely relate because having gone from burn notice on a Friday afternoon to Glee on a Monday morning, it was just like getting smacked in the face with a two by four. It's like, whoa, <laughs> this is a very different world than I'm used to. And it was a learning curve for a while. And especially the notes process, I was like, oh, that's what you're going for. Okay, now I understand. But the first time you're doing anything, you're learning how to tell a new language, right? You're learning how to speak it differently. There's different pacing, different music. So it was a crash course for me. But the funny thing is that even though I only worked on one episode, to this day, that's one of the top three credits that people use when they introduce me at a panel or on an interview. They always pick out Glee because it's so popular. And I'm like, yeah, but I've done tons of episodes of TV and that was like four weeks of my life. But it stands out because it's so different and unique. And I think that getting that one episode of Glee drastically changed the direction of my career because like you, again, this is one of those crazy, crazy tangents. And I promise I'm wrapping this up because this definitely went longer than I promised. Um, but after doing four seasons of Burn Notice, which was my first TV series, I was the Burn Notice guy and I couldn't get work. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is a huge, crazy hit show on USA. Everybody loves it. It's got all this style. Like it's an editor's playground and nobody would consider me. And it was through the connection of the music supervisor on Burn Notice to a personal friend of hers that was doing a medical drama for ABC that I talked myself into a job on a one and done uh, show where the showrunner happened to be Eileen Chaikin, who loved working with me so much that she basically um, convinced Danny Strong and Lee Daniels to have me edit on Empire. So it was all about those personal relationships. But the reason that she was able to convince them that I could do Empire was because I did Glee. It's amazing. So it's just this one little tiny thing that to this day still pops up in conversations. I'll say, oh, I've worked on this and this and this. They're like, yeah, but didn't you work on Glee? I'm like, yeah, technically, <laughs> I guess. I mean, I was there for like five weeks, but okay, sure. But you probably did like 12 weeks of work in five weeks. Oh, easily. Yeah, I mean, that was... <laughs> and, and what I learned very quickly is I was like, wow, this is an amazing process and what a cool experience. And I'm good. Like one episode was enough. I'm more, I'm more than good. I, I got my taste and I'm, I'm, I'm ready to move on. Um, was definitely not an environment conducive to my lifestyle requirements. 
um, meaning being able to sleep uh, the regulated number of hours per night, putting my kids to bed. It was not an environment that was really meshing well with all the things that I talk about as far as work-life balance and better health and um, prioritization. So, um, but it was a great experience. It was a really fun boot camp for five or six weeks, but I don't think I could have survived the amount of seasons that you did. So kudos to you. <laughs> so I find it ironic that we have two editors on this podcast, both of whom are basically building an entire career around their ability to be so good with timing. And we've run like half an hour over. So okay. I think that every moment of this was totally worth it. So I apologize if I kept you from anything else, but no, not at all. This is, this was just too good for me to jump in and say, yeah, we should cut it off. Um, but at this point, I do want to thank you very, very much for your time. It means a lot to me. And this is something I wanted to do probably for a couple of years. And it's always kind of been on the someday list and like, nope, it's time to do this and, and really get this in the can. Cause I think there's a lot of value that people in my audience can take from your story, um, especially because, like I said, like your name just keeps coming up in conversation after conversation. Like, my God, it's so can't, crazy. Can't we got to get to the bottom of this. I don't think I, we got to the bottom of that, but we're going to figure I it out. No, we will figure it out. But I want, to, uh, I want to allow other people to contribute to the game of Six Degrees of Doc Kratzer. And in order to do that, they have to know how to find you. So how can they do that? I am on Twitter, at Doc Kratzer. I am on Instagram, at Doc Kratzer. Uh, I have a skeleton website that is apparently uh, a lot like Zach's at DocKratzer.com. But uh, I wouldn't even go there. I would just look at uh, Twitter or Instagram. I think I'm on Facebook still, but uh, I haven't been on it in a long time. So those are the other places. Got it. All right. Well, that, that should be more than enough for people to start connecting with you. And I just want to say one more time that this really meant a lot to me. I love this conversation. I mean, I love all my interviews, but this one was really got to the heart of a lot of the things that I love talking about specifically in my career coaching and mentorship program. And like I said, you probably come up in almost every single session that I do. So I figured it was time that I could just say, Hey, you want to learn more about Doc Crosser? <laughs> go to this podcast interview. So here we go in the can and I, I can guess. do that. So that's awesome. Uh, really, really appreciate Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Zach. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.